Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Your Wealth podcast. It's a bit of a joy to still be presenting amazing guests and great ideas to so many of you after two and a bit years. And I can't thank you enough for tuning in. It's pretty amazing to us. For our 100th episode, we really wanted to bring you something a little bit different, taking a longer view about creating wealth over a lifetime, hopefully. At NabTrade, we're lucky enough to work regularly with the team at Twitter, and Peter Switzer has kindly agreed to join us today to talk through how he became a financial expert, a recognised financial expert. Peter is probably known to all of you. He has a personal finance show on Sky Business. Uh, he has a weekly radio program on TGB. He has a personal advice, uh, financial advice and loans practice, as well as providing daily commentary through Switzer Daily, Switzer Super Report. He's on NabTrade all the time. A lot of people talk about finance and about markets in the media and online, but today Peter's agreed to talk about how he built his knowledge, that whole base of knowledge and expertise and how he has applied those in the real world. Mm. Peter, thanks so much for joining me. Great pity, great pity, great (laughs) pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, and and I'm really looking forward to it because I don't get a chance to really talk about the evolution of what I learned over time because... Most of the financial lessons I share with people, because I always think of myself as an educator. I know people think I'm a journalist or a commentator, but I started off as a teacher, then a lecturer of economics at the University of New South Wales. And I was there for uh, near on 12, 12 years. Uh, and along the way, I got seduced to the media because the media is so, so easy to get seduced by. Um, but also, I, I saw the media as an opportunity to have a much bigger classroom, a much bigger lecture room. And I was kind of lucky in the sense that um, I hit um, employment uh, in the mid to late 70s uh, out of university and of course, the 80s was the period of deregulation. So in many ways, I have written a story, you know, the, how Paul Keating created the business I had to have. And because of deregulation, there were a whole lot of normal people wondering, how come the Australian dollar's gone to 47 US cents? You know, why is he talking about banana republics? And, and why, why did he um, uh, free up the financial system and allow Barclays and the other banks to come in and compete with our local? Like, and, and why do we have to take away tariff protection? And why do wages have to fall? All these questions that people wanted answers to um, gave me a, an opportunity to apply what my trade was, making the complicated really easy to understand. And what I also noticed was a lot of people in the media, because they hadn't really taught economics, um, often would use the jargon. But because I'd taught at, I taught at Sydney Grammar School, some of the brightest kids in the country there, University of New South Wales, once again, really bright. And I realised even how smart people didn't understand economics. So I always was trying to decode dumbed down so people would understand it and then they could actually escalate up to higher levels because I know when I was a teacher and I haven't shut up since I've started, I'm sorry Jim, but when I started teaching, I was teaching maths as well. Yes, I'm an economist who can do numbers Um, (laughs) and I realised if if people didn't get the first stepping stones of, of a mathematical challenge, they wouldn't get the other ones and so I think economics is the same. If you make the, the, fa- the foundation stones understandable, people would then go to the next level. And that's why I created little things like when people ask me, well, 
why is interest rate why are interest rates so important for the economy? I then created a thing called Suzanne Economics. This goes with this, goes with this, goes with this. Oh. And you might remember the old Suzanne <laughs> commercial. Might this not goes with that. this, goes with yeah, this. Yeah. And and the idea is that if you raise interest rates, uh, in, in interest rates will go down. So rising interest rates mean investment. Sorry, investment goes down. So then investment goes down. Uh, therefore, people uh, in business are demanding less employees, and therefore unemployment goes up. So you have those little. Uh, blocks those little arrows and things like that, and people start saying, "Oh, there is a a, a, a pattern in economics." And then I then employ, use the same processes to understand the world of finance because university didn't really teach us much about finance, and I've done use the same process to understand the world of finance. That's so fascinating. I think you're absolutely right about that point. That if you <laughs> If you miss the fundamentals, the rest of it's just going to be a complete blur. I had a superb economics teacher at school who's the only reason that I got into and economics. And what school did you go to and who, who was he or she? Uh, who's a guy named Mr Bellamy. I went to a... Give him praise. <laughs> I did, well, he died, which is heartbreaking. Oh. And I wanted to get in touch with him and say what, what an enormous impact he'd had. And, um, and he's no longer with us, which is awful. He was yeah. such a superb teacher. Mm. And, he, and I was originally going to do law, but he was so interesting. I was like, this is much more fascinating. Yeah. One of those anyway you're right, you're right. It is much, more, <laughs> much more fascinating um and he i remember the first supply and demand curves that mm. you learn it's like basically day one of mm. high school economics yeah. and they're explaining the supply curve effectively saying as the price goes up the supplier will want to supply more of mm. that product mm. the demand curve says the opposite mm. right as the price goes off we goes mm. up we will demand less mm. and i remember going makes no sense at all because surely the supplier would know that we will demand less so why would they want to produce more and mm. he was saying to me well yeah, just because they know the other side isn't going to want what they want doesn't mean they're not going to do it and I was yeah. like okay fair <clears throat> enough at least we've got the building blocks under control we yeah. can work uh, in, in actual fact I should explain to you I've always had an origin in markets because mm. My dad uh, owned a business supplying cafes and restaurants with fruit and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So I worked for dad. Um, I got a scholarship to uni and my reward was a, an old ute, an E.H. Holden ute with a leather apron and a trolley. And I was given about eight restaurants in uh, the Imperial Arcade and the Centrepoint uh, Arcade in Sydney. And I had to get up every morning about 4.30, go in, load up the truck, deliver, then go to university. So I've always been in the markets. And what was interesting is that um, uh, at one stage in the, in the history of, of Australian fruit, passion fruits became unbelievably expensive. And I said to Dad, yeah, well, why are they so expensive? He said, well, two or three years ago, there was a glut of passion fruit. You couldn't give them away. So, so the price fell. All the, all the farmers pulled out all their passion fruit vines because the price didn't encourage them. The flip side is that then when the price went up, they all started putting passion fruit. So, so as price went up, supply eventually mm. increased. So that was actually good to be working in a market when I was studying basically economics, which is all about markets. That's absolutely fascinating. That must have been such an exceptionally useful practical experience yeah. of how markets work because fruit and vegetable supply and demand change really dramatically all the time and particularly I imagine for restaurants and cafes yeah. where they have to decide what they're going to serve. It was quite interesting to me to be honest as a consumer realising that often what you're being served is not what consumers are demanding but what's quite plentiful in supply and well priced at the mm. moment. Mm. You know, Monday's fish 
might not be what you want to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true when you think, you know, if, you, if you're putting together a salad and avocados are going through the roof in price, you'll try and put together maybe a coleslaw type mm. product, you know, with even make interesting nowadays given – What's that Israeli chef? Is it Ottolinghi or something? Yeah, he's a famous chef. But he ought to put um, pomegranates into mm. a salad. Like, who used to do that you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s in Australia? None of our parents did that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's all changed, which is where I was going. So the first que- mm. two questions I was going to ask you. Yeah. One, how did you get into finance? Yeah. So you're saying, did you study economics at university? Yep, yep. And the master's, um, started my PhD. So I was going to be Dr. Switzer. Oh, and and one of my one of my colleagues at the time in a PhD was the very famous Steve Keane. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that explains Dr. a lot. Doom, mm. who predicted forty percent house price fall. So Steve and I and we then taught together. We mm. both taught at New South. I was appointed by John Hewson. John was head of UNSW at the time when I started tutoring there. Um, yeah, and so um, studied economics. Was going to do a PhD. Then around um, eighty. Four, I think it was, the Sydney Morning Herald was doing uh, an economics and a student's guide for the HSC. Ross Gittins was writing the economics and I was used to read Ross. Um, and I'd just started uh, tutoring at New South and in those good old days, the tutor only had to work 20 hours and we had a, a, our second born, Alex, and Maureen, my wife, was uh, teaching as well and I had the the life of Riley, only working 20 hours a week, and I'd go home and pick up Alex and take you for a swim and stuff like that. And I, when he went to sleep one afternoon, I, I saw that the Sydney Morning Herald was going to do a, a full-on education supplement, not just economics with Ross. And so I thought, well, if the Herald's doing that, maybe the Telegraph might be interested. So I rang up and just asked for the operator to put me through to the editor, and she did. Like... <laughs> who, who would have thought? I don't know if you should try that now, but no, it's a, you're never going to. Yeah. And he picked it up, and I just said to him, "You know, the Sydney Morning Herald was doing an education supplement. I've taught at Sydney Grammar School. I'm now lecturing at uh, university. I can probably get you ten of the best teachers in the in the state to mm. do maybe four little articles that you could publish." He said, "Come in and talk to me." So he did, and I did the economics. And at the end of it, he asked me to do a a Wednesday column up against Ross because Ross used to write, write on Saturdays, Mondays. Wednesdays and Saturdays, so he asked me to write on Wednesdays uh, in opposition to Ross. And a guy called David White, who was the Triple M National News Director, used to read me, and he was doing a documentary, and this was September 87, and the documentary was called Are We Living on Borrowed Time? And he wow. said, would you come and help me do this documentary? Mm. So I said, yeah, and he said, how much money would you like? And I said, don't worry about the money, I'd love to work in radio one day, anything I learn would be great. Mm. Uh, that's one thing I've learned about the media. If you ask for too much, you won't get a start. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so right in the middle of uh, making this documentary, the October stock market crash in 87 happened, and all of a sudden I was on Triple M in Sydney with Doug Mulroy rating over 20% of the Sydney audience, the degeneration in Melbourne, who the guys you know, from Working Dog and all that sort of, uh, Rob Sitch and all those Utopia, guys. Yeah, you will know those yeah. guys. They're and so, so I, all of a sudden I was from university, I was the, the person who did commentary on it, and then all of a sudden they offered me a contract and bang, the media stuff took off and I had to work out, did I want to become Dr. Switzer or do I want to be the, the groovy finance guy on Triple M? <laughs> <laughs> Triple M won. So you were just sort of man on the spot, but there were a lot of 
there was a lot of work and a lot of years that went into it. Yeah, that. I think it was aspiration because when I was a young mm. footballer, I, I played for East uh, up, up until Jersey Flag. Um, I wonder, I was going to be a great footballer, but the higher I got up, I realised just how hard it was playing. You know, guys who who maybe had no real future apart from footy, and they were playing for sheep stations when they go out on the football field. So um, yeah, so I, that was my initial plan, but I decided that uh, economics are probably going to be my going to be my long suit. And I used, to, I used to write stories about the, the football games in the local newspaper. So I always had a bit of a journalistic um, inclination. When I left school, I actually got a, a scholarship, not a scholarship, a cadetship with the Sydney Morning Herald. But the guy who was supposed to retire decided to delay it for six months. And, and a lady by the name of Cathy Common, who offered me the cadetship, said, Pete, do you mind being, being a cadet for six months? And I just didn't like the idea of being a cadet I'd been offered the scholarship to uni, so I said, look, to her, I'll go back to university, do the scholarship, and I'll come back and meet you after that. And she said, well, funnily enough, you want to be a sports journalist now, maybe in the future you might want to be a political or economics journalist. And she actually got absolutely right. So that was probably a, a, a good um, knockback, which actually served me a lot of good. That's just fascinating. So one of the things that I find really interesting, um, so I did my study quite a bit later than you did, um, but the rules appear quite fixed when you're, when you're studying and when you're learning. And I am starting to appreciate, certainly in a world of almost zero interest rates, I was mm. not learning about zero interest rates. That no. was not a thing when I was at uni. You didn't have um, kind of that. Yeah. And you do wonder how students are learning about it now, actually. I'm quite fascinated. Mm. But what did you learn from your study that you were able to apply in the real world? So taking mm. it away from the journalistic, uh, mm. teaching other people, but how you apply it to your own situation. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. Um, like I, I can remember even when I was I was lecturing at New South and uh, my son was studying the HSC and uh, he was asking me about exchange rates. So I used the the demand, demand and supply curves for foreign exchange to explain to him how exchange rates work. And uh, he, I told him what would shift the curve and therefore change the exchange rate. And uh, he looked at me and said, Dad, given that, um, it seems as though you don't know what you're talking about because <laughs> the, the exchange rate is going in the opposite direction of what you'd think. Mm. And that's when I looked at him I said, yeah, but there's one thing I left out, and left out on purpose, and that is the power of speculation. Because you know the fundamentals might say that the curve should be moving this way, but if the market sentiment is totally against what the fundamentals are, well, that can be a much bigger driver of the price of commodities or stocks or or, or currencies. And I think that's what I learned along the way. I learned the fantastic theory, and I can always remember this in particular. Uh, and this was right when the stock market was crashing in October 87. I was still teaching at New South and a, a colleague of mine, Graham White, who, who was a you know, good economist, he actually, uh, you know, and, and the market was crashing. And he actually said, you know, it's not quite clear that there is any sort of economic fundamental explanation of why the stock market is crashing. Mm. And I, I thought to myself, yeah, that makes total sense. But it is. And so our job <laughs> is not just to say what theories tells you what to do, which we do inside a lecture hall. There are people out there who have just lost a whole lot of money and they want someone to explain it to them. And I, I think I, I realised, because I was just starting to work in, in the media and I was being asked 
interesting questions by people like Doug Mulray and Stuart Cranny and all those other people who are working at Triple M and Rob Sitch and people like that. Um, and I had to have answers. And I think that meant that I had to breach, understand the world of theory, but also splicing realism. And I think, you know, the, the thing is, economics actually came from realism. You know, people like Adam Smith weren't traded, trained as economists, but regarded as one of the greatest economists of all time. He tried to explain what was going on, and then theory and models and charts and all that sort of stuff came, came along the way. I think that's, I think that's fine. unbelievably fascinating. So when you were dealing with all the theory and then also the reality of markets, I agree with you mm. entirely. Mm. There's nothing more disorientating than looking at everything you learned at university and then dealing with markets and going, oh, my God, mm. there's almost no correlation between these two yeah. things. In fact, yeah. they're going uh, – they're inversely correlated in some ways, yeah. the the facts that I'm supposed to be relying on. Don't use the inversely. People don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> it all looks upside down and back yeah. to front. That's good. Um, <laughs> so – when you're de- – because I'm fascinated by this. Mm. You have all of your theory. You're explaining the realities of what's occurring to yeah. people. Do you look at your own personal financial situation and go, okay, how am I going to make the most of this? You had a young family at the yeah. time and yeah. lots going on in your yeah. life yeah. Um, and maybe not a great salary if you're an academic and, mm. and working in media. Mm. So how did you take all of that and go, but I need to look after myself as well? Yeah, It's interesting. Um, when, when the stock market crashed – um, yeah, my, my interest in the stock market was minimal. Yet right. I was going to be brought on to Triple M and then I started working with Clive Robertson on Channel 7 and ABC started getting me on. And it was really interesting. I, I made a decision um, earlier that year to give up the Daily Telegraph because I love sport. That's, that's the main reason you buy the Daily Telegraph. And I... I I was lecturing economics and, I, yeah. and, I, and tutoring and I, I decided I, I needed to start understanding financial markets. So I bought, started buying the Financial Review and I was reading the Australian business section and the, and the Herald's business. I actually did start to start absorbing it, but I hadn't started investing my money. And, and, I, and thank God I, I had the Fin Review uh, on my desk when I was rung up by Triple and uh, by David White. What in the hell is going on, Squits? So at least I had the access to Max Walsh and all these well-known people who, who ultimately became my role models, you know, because Max is great at economics but also good at markets and things like that. So I, at that point in time, my my biggest investment was, and I, th- I think it probably showed that I understood markets, we'd bought a house in Pennington for $54,000, uh, which ultimately has been the best investment it's that we've ever Paddington, made. not Brisbane, where that would have been nice, but Paddington, <laughs> Sydney, where it's even nicer. That's right. <laughs> and so I think we understood the value of things. And I think also um, both Maureen and I, Maureen's – both an economics graduate, a law graduate as well. And she also majored in English, which, which meant that my early writings was always fixed up by her. In fact, <laughs> my writings even today... So your best uh, investment was choosing a really good without spouse. Without a doubt, yeah. without a doubt. Always have great mentors in your life. But I think the, the, the thing is, I've learned over the years, you have to look at at what's going on around you. And a friend of mine had bought in Queen Street, Wallara, 
uh, for $80,000. Now, this guy was... I am a- very sorry if you're listening to this and you're <laughs> a young person because this is just upsetting for you, but it's still interesting. Yeah. Mm. But, but by the way, it was relatively expensive, but not as expensive as it was. A lot of people didn't want to live in Paddington in those days. Mm. People wanted to live in Waverley or Bondi or Double Bay. And the next suburb along was Paddington, but terraces were regarded as old and dowdy and people didn't want to live in them. But a friend of mine who was a a technical guy, an engineer, um, he bought a place in Queen Street for $80,000 and he was an engineer on the Fairlight music instrument. And the Fairlight music instrument was the first internationally hailed computer music instrument and developed in Rushcoast Bay by a guy called Peter Vogel. Um, uh, Peter was an eastern suburbs um, guy. Um, Bought by uh, Led Zeppelin, Stevie Wonder. This is like an extraordinary piece of Australian innovation that a lot of people, uh, people in the music world know it. Mm. uh, And and I used to actually clean the factory because my mate of mine, I was a school teacher and interest rates were going through the roof. I actually developed a cleaning business on the site and I actually got the job cleaning this this particular very... uh, cool factory because it was a computer music instrument it wasn't a heavy factory but yeah um so i started to realize you need to look at where the trends were when charlie bought that place in queen street i thought yeah that's that's pretty clever and also a well-known um gay comedian by the name of gordon chater who was you know famous for being gay and being a comedian, he bought him Bench Street in Paddington. And I thought he did that as a complete <laughs> joke. <laughs> yeah, you, you can see the relevance. So we decided that this was going to be a place that was on the way up. And so we bought in there. And what I've learned from that is the same thing that I do when I'm looking around for stocks. Uh, and the, and the, the biggest mistake I've ever made was not buying zero. Because I did, I did a presentation for Zero in their second year of conferences, um, and I'll have a history of, of small business. You know, I've written, written a lot of books on small business because we developed our own small business. And that at that conference, I was staggered by the number of bookkeepers who had switched from NYOB to Zero, and that was a, a forward indicator that the key. Um, Influences of small business were seeing the future of zero, and and I could have bought it at fourteen dollars, and I real and I actually talked about it on my TV program, and I think uh, Roger Montgomery liked it at the time, and it went from fourteen dollars to about twenty five dollars or something like that. It dropped back down to fourteen. I think it's well over fifty or something like that. Now I can't look at the the price because I know it was one of my biggest mistakes where I missed a trend I'd seen. I think that's a very important thing that there are trends where the community is changing. Afterpay is a classic mm. point. You know, young people have taught us that's what they want to do. Older people are, this, this is terrible. This way, what's this age? It's like the old lay by system. You've got to watch those trends. Afterpay is one for me, actually, because um, I'm on a lot of uh, – I'm into design and mm. I was absolutely fascinated when a lot of design groups that I'm part of, people would see products and mm. things that they thought were terribly attractive. Not yep. very expensive things. Things are like 100 yep. bucks, right? Um, obviously outside the price range of the people who were looking at them and they'd be saying – do they have afterpay? Does, mm. pers- does the business that sells this product mm. have afterpay? And I was like, I don't know what afterpay is. But also, really? Like, you need to lay by that item? What mm. are you doing? Yeah. So I was going, you can't afford it. Yeah. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. That's not what everybody else no, was thinking. No. And it was a real education. I'm like, come on, Gemma. You saw hundreds, hundreds of comments about this mm. product. 
years ago. You should have seen it coming, you idiot. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and by the I way, learned. <laughs> Jim, by the way, I taught Anthony Eisen, the founder oh, of it as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and I still didn't get in, I've got to say. But you know, I, I always worried that maybe uh, government regulation yeah. might get them. Um, and it still could happen, but they've done a great job. Yeah, regulatory factors are always quite interesting. Mm. Um, and part of my career was was very much working in the regulation side. So I always worked on superannuation tax, social security, mm. that sort of stuff. And so budget night, biggest night of the year for us, we'd sit up, we'd look at all of the new legislation that was – or the policy at the yep. time. But I'm old enough to remember when the government had a majority of both the House of Reps and the Senate. Mm. So when they announced policy, it was going to happen, happen unless yeah. something – yeah, you know, there was a big lobbying act or something that was going to uh, going to force them to rethink. Um, so I was always very concerned about regulatory change because I dealt with it as a yeah. for a living, and so you can see the impact it has on a business. I yeah, remember when a Macmillan, big impact on share prices too. Well, I, I remember when Macmillan Shakespeare just got wiped out overnight because of changes to salary sacrifice. Right. Right? They, back, they backed off that in the end, didn't they? I think they backed off that change. Yeah, not to the same extent that mm. it was originally proposed. Yeah, yeah but it was yeah. a great example of oh, where share price. And there's a great company. Mm. On the way up and bang overnight. Yeah. Yep. It's a, so you're talking about small business. So this is really interesting. So you're learning about the share market because you've realised you have to. Yeah. You've got a great basis in economics and finance, mm. so a good place to start. Yeah. But also at an extraordinary time, right? So were you invested at all prior to 87 uh, when the crash came? Well, in fact, there was um, one really terrible investment didn't cost me much but I was young at the time and it was a Westfield you remember when Westfield bought Channel 10 Uh, you're probably too young to remember but but there was (laughs) before my time there was a period where very successful entrepreneurs bought television stations Alan Mm. Bond bought Channel 9 Um, the the Lowy family bought Channel 10 right and Stokes would have probably bought seven. Because yeah. I, I, seven used to be owned by Fairfax, but Paul Keating broke up. Um, you were, With your ownership yeah, so once, yeah. once upon a time, Fairfax owned the Sydney Morning Herald, the Financial Review, Personal Investment Magazine, BRW, 2GB, and Channel 7. And Channel 7, right. And, so th- and that, 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 they were all broken up. And that's, and that's where a lot of the um, entrepreneurs got involved. And uh, Channel 10 was a bad investment for, for Frank Lowy. Uh, Westpac ended up owning it because they were the, the biggest lender to Westfield. That was extraordinary. And I, in fact, I do remember uh, being interviewed on Mike Gibson's Sydney program, which was a current affairs show on Channel 10. And, and uh, we were bashing banks. And I really just laid into Westpac over some of the mistakes it made. And... I stopped and looked at Mike and said, hang on, you're owned by Westpac. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yeah. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stop talking about that now. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah no, I, yeah. Don't, I don't think a bank would be allowed to own a media, media outlet no, these not, days. Well, I think it was just by default because basically yeah. they, they, they ran, ran away from debt and they eventually sold it off to, to an, another group. In fact, in fact, I think John Singleton, in, in a sense, ended up with a part of it as well. But the, the thing is this. It was like Westfield Capital Corporation or something mm. like that. And I was given a tip mm. by a really influential family uh, you know, where I'd been teaching at Sydney Grammar School. Mm. And they said, this is going to be a, a really good investment. So I'd go into that. And it was hopeless. 
<laughs> and, I, and that's one of the reasons I'm very, very careful about tips. Mm. I've learnt, uh, even from, uh, or investing in friends, yeah. people who I like, who've been made CEO of an organisation or they list a, a company. You really have to be objective about those sorts of things. Unless you just say, right, because the way I invest a gemma is I have a core of investments which I think are really great quality mm. uh, assets, whether it be property or stocks. And I try to buy them when no one wants to buy them. So, and when, when Warren Buffett said, um, you know, be fearful when everyone's greedy and be greedy when everyone's fearful, yeah, it's a great way of putting something that I learned over time that sometimes you buy at the wrong time. And, and even though as a financial advisor, I say it's very difficult to time the market, and time in the market does really work. I, I, I love the double play to be able to buy at the right time mm. and then let it run, let it run after that. But you know, continually always trying to buy in, buy out, that's really difficult. But if you can buy an asset when no one else wants to buy it, that can be fantastic. You said so many. Feel the passion. Feel the passion. Yeah, yeah. No, you said so many interesting things in such a short space of time. I'm going to try to unpick them all. The okay. one that I'll pick up on first is the tips and family and friends thing, because yeah. uh, I learned that as a child. Uh, my parents had some great friends, really awesome people, right? Really great people who had an investment scheme. It's called a scheme. Uh, and everyone in the neighbourhood invested in this scheme mm. apart from my parents and two others. My parents are broke anyway, so I don't mm. think it would have been – their contribution <laughs> would have been pretty been. limited anyway. Um, but I remember my dad saying to me, oh, no, you never invest with friends. Never. Mm. Great people, really like them, yeah. definitely not investing with them. Yeah. And it just stuck with me, but not many years later, the scheme was wound up by ASIC. It was a very big deal at the time. It hit the papers. It was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and all of these friends of ours lost all the money that was in it. And then the ATO came after them because they'd not been paying tax on it. And it was deemed to be an unregistered uh, mm. managed investment scheme. And it was this, it was a big scandal. Yeah. And it had happened you know, effectively on our doorstep with yeah. all these people we knew. But mm. my parents were completely untouched because they don't invest with friends. Yeah. I was like, God, that's good. Advice. Yeah, and you've seen it go wrong. Yeah, and look, I, 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 I'm, I've just tried to think: Have I ever? I have invested where a friend had introduced me to the company. Yeah, but I still did my own objective assessment, and the fact that the person was a friend didn't influence the fact that I wanted to go in there. Like, and I have, I've invested in companies where friends of mine become the CEO, um, and I wanted to support uh, him. Uh, and that's a dumb reason to do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and he had a very good track record at another company. Mm. But unbeknownst to me, he had a really difficult board. And so he was never really able to execute the way I would have expected him to execute. And so, but that was what I learned along the way. And I think, and that's what I try to impart when I educate people that. Um, some people think the stock market is like going to the races at Flemington or, or Randwick and that you're punting. And I think a lot of people do buy stocks that way. They're punting on penny dreadfuls, hoping that they'll become afterpay overnight or a mining stock that's 10 cents and then becomes 20, you know, $25 or something like that. That's really hard. It's like backing a 100 to 1 shot. But I think investing in the stock market means that you are looking at looking for quality assets that have the potential to either pay you dividends and capital gain 
Or you might go in and say, okay, I'm going for capital gain here and you probably have a low entry price and you are you are investing in the future because it's going to be a growth company. And remember, the greatest company in Australia doesn't pay much of a dividend called CSL. And the people who, who rejected it because it didn't pay a dividend missed out on all that growth. But it was never a punter's stock CSL, never. It was always a quality company just in the growth phase. I love your passion talking about really high quality businesses. I think it's something that's quite easy to forget when people look at the at the short-term opportunity mm. in things without going, is this a business I really love? Is it something that I really believe has an extraordinary long-term future? Yeah. And CSL, I, I was lucky enough to work in a business where CSL was big news when I was quite young and the yeah. price was like $14 or something. Um, I bought it then, uh, which I talk about far too much. You still got it? <laughs> I still have some. Um, and <laughs> you couldn't help selling it on the way, could you? Partly because, oh, partly because uh, no, the selling the, was always the million-dollar house you live in and things like that. <laughs> It was to fund housing. That was yeah. why we sold some. Yeah. Um, and the housing's been a good investment, yeah. right? It's somewhere to live and raise your kids, if nothing else. Mm. And uh, But I I love it as yeah. a business. I love it. I love what they're doing. It's adding value in mm. the world. It's making life easier and better for people. Like There's something really nice about yeah. going, I didn't just buy this because I thought it was going to go up in value. I bought it because I believe in it. I think it's a great yeah. thing. As an Australian, you be proud of a company. Yeah. It's innovative like and it's fun yeah. and they've got this incredible R&D book. People were talking about the R&D book 15 years ago. Mm. Like it's just, just this kind of deep, extraordinary research that they invest mm. in and any one of the things in that book could be the next great big thing and nobody yeah. knows which one it's going to be. It's all very exciting. I also, um, also like the fact that the CEO for a long time was Paul McNamee's brother, you know, the great tennis <laughs> player. His yeah. brother's actually good at business. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love that. It's, well, apparently there's a reasonably higher correlation between people who are good at sport and people who can uh, – some fitness thing anyway, mm. I won't go into I that. was a genius at sport. <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely dreadful, apart from gymnastics, unless you count that. Um, so what were the big steps you feel really accelerated your progress financially as well as professionally? Or even um, little steps that really accelerated yeah. your progress? Look, I, I think – I think going into business for ourselves, uh, ourselves, um, Laura and myself, um, meant that we became really focused. Well, one of my favourite quotes um, comes from Chris Everett, the tennis player. And Chris was, I was going into Melbourne Park uh, with my son Alex, who'd been made uh, tennis captain at his school. And I said to him, just to Proof to him I was his father, I asked an annoying question. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, uh, who was the greatest tennis player of all time? <clears throat> and this was, you know, a few, few years ago. And uh, he said, uh, he, he thought for a while, and he was, I knew he was a great fan of Federer. He, he tipped Federer when, when Ewart was beating Federer. Alex said, you know, Federer will one day be better than Ewart. Uh, and uh, he said, Chris Everett. And it surprised me because, you know, I thought Pete Sampras, uh, Laver, uh, Billie Jean King, Navratilova, all these great players, you know, Chris Everett. And she, she, I think she had 12 Grand Slams or something like that, which is pretty good. Uh, but he said she had, that, um, she had something like a, a 90% success rate in professional tennis. So, so nine times out of ten when she went on the court, she won. So that was extraordinary. So I, mm. I was fascinated. I wrote a story about it and I and I, I looked up one of her quotes. The quote, well, I, I'll try and remember it. Uh, it goes something like this: um, 
deep down I wanted to win so badly I could actually will it to happen. I think most of my career was based on desire. And when I read that, I instantly thought about some of the, the stories I'd written for the Australian because I was their small business editor as a contractor. I started the small business section in the Australian with people who were hitherto unknown at the time, like Mark Burris and John Simon, Janine Alice from Booth Fruit Juice, all these well-known, now yeah. well-known business builders. And when she said that, that reminded me of them. Like, you know, John Simon was dedicated to making Aussie home loans the greatest threat to banks ever, you know. Mm. And, and Burris then decided he, he was going to learn from Simon and be a rival to Mark Simon and the banks as well. And so these people were committed to succeed. And I think that's what I, I brought to our business. And because our business was explaining economics, explaining small business success and explaining financial things and, and, and we started a financial planning business along the way, it, it just all became logical that we had to be 24-7 committed and very, very focused to making this stuff understandable. And to understand it, then you get supersonic confidence and you learn. And I've, I've said I was so lucky to be essentially schooled by great business builders and then schooled by great investors because I had to read everything that Buffett said. I had to read everything that Ray Dalio said and everything that – and by the way, I used to interview Renee Rifkin on my Qantas Talking Business program because I, I was the first host of Talking Business on Qantas and actually named it Talking Business did it for 10 years. And, and Renee, Renee got – in a bit of trouble because he over a quantum stock as well. And so we had to take him off talking business. But the stuff I learned from him was quite fascinating. And, and I thought about him during the week, because he has passed away. I thought about him during the week because I always wanted him to give us cheap stocks for people who are listing on the plane. Mm. And he looked at me one day and said, it's not the price of the stock that counts because mm. if I give you a $100 stock, and it goes up by 10%, so you'll make $10. If I give you a $1 stock and it goes up by 10 cents, it's 10%. It's the, it's the quality of the company. He mm. said the ultimate will determine the return. So if you've got uh, $1,000 to invest and you buy 10 $100 stocks, you can do better than maybe buying a $1,000 uh, $1 stocks and uh, simply making nothing. So, and I think that's what CSL's been. A lot of people are afraid of the three hundred odd dollar tag it's got now, but if its potential's still there, it can keep on going higher. We've literally just published an article from you guys talking about that, which is I think going to help a lot of people who are struggling with that price. Mm. Just actually was thinking about your comments about CSL. We just ran a quick analysis of our SMSF book last year and what yeah. their trading patterns look like. Yeah. And CSL is the big gap in their portfolios. The very overweight banks, they've been working that down mm. over time. So they were holding about 45% banks five years ago yeah. of their portfolio, not just domestic, but total, yeah. which is just extraordinary. Yeah. And then they've been working that down both by selling and also the price falls. Mm. Prices haven't been that flash either. And then diversifying their portfolios and they've been moving into fixed income products and moving into international, but they have not been moving sort of more broadly in the domestic market. Mm. So only 10% of our SMSFs hold CSL. Yeah, I understand that. Those ones, though, 
hold an average of $150,000 in the stock, which is not nothing, right? No. You know, the average portfolio holding of other stocks like Telstra is like 40 grand. Yeah, 40 grand. So they're very high conviction when they hold it yeah. and they're letting it run, which is great, mm. but it's only such a small proportion of them. And you think, yeah. oh, guys, I know when you're in pension phase that you want the yield, yeah. but that's, that's what I, I think about. I think that that's where a lot of SMSF people – need to get an objective set of eyes onto their portfolio. Um, some people, a lot of SMS of people love being their own advisor, but I reckon they should at least go to advisor once, even just for an objective look at what's going on in their portfolio. Because I think you know chasing dividends and having a core of quality dividend paying companies makes absolute sense. But there should be a small percentage for those alpha type stocks which gives you capital growth. And, uh, and CSL would have been a classic case of, a, of an alpha growing um, stock that a person could have had only even, even just holding 5%. So if you had a million-dollar mm. portfolio, you'd have 50, 000, you would have bought $50,000 worth of CSL, which would have been worth a real lot of money now. Yeah, yeah, it's a small bet in the yeah. context of everything else, yeah. but that's where you're going to yeah. get your, uh, your alpha from. Any lessons you learned the hard way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dave Cook and Brown. Oh, uh, God, didn't everybody uh, learn that? The I didn't have any, thank God. Yeah, well, um, yeah, and the reason was... Actually, the, I'm just thinking, because there will be younger people listening to this, so yeah. if you weren't around in 2006, mm. you have no idea what we're no, talking it's about. No, so, And see, what, what happened was, and Babcock & Brown was a, a company that was meant to look like Macquarie. Yeah. And Macquarie had been uh, the poster child for a, a great investment bank, even though it learnt lessons out of the GFC as well, but we can see that they've learnt their lessons well and their share price reflects how good they are nowadays. Um, but the guys behind Babcock and Brown were smart guys and they realised... I, I don't think they actually tried to be a, a company to falsify uh, what they wanted to be. So they wanted to be Macquarie, and so we all saw them as being the next Macquarie. Um, but along the way, they made really bad decisions when things went wrong, um, and decisions that I don't think Macquarie would have made. Uh, and that's why they weren't that. And I think a lot of people saw them as being the next Macquarie, and people got in there and invested, and when the GFC hit, uh, for a variety of reasons, they were very vulnerable on the, down, on the downside and they just disappeared. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people lost, lost a lot of money. Fortunately, one of the first lessons I learned was about diversification. So I didn't have a big exposure to them. It's an exposure I remember. <laughs> uh, it hurts. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. But that's a valuable lesson. And, and it's probably when I, I did decide that um, the core of my, my portfolio coming out of the GFC, and by the way, um, I've always known the best time to buy, as I said earlier, was when everyone's scared. So that even though I didn't like the GFC, and I, I've got to say, I, I didn't even... I was still reasonably young in the GFC, and I knew I had at least two or three more crashes ahead of me and two or three more up cycles. I don't think I even valued what my portfolio went to because I was, I'm a long-term investor. What I did do was... I, I bought Macquarie at 23, panicked when I got the 16. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, I, I, bought, I didn't buy CBA at 23, but, but CBA probably at 30. So 
it was an opportunity for me to buy after the GFC and I was never going to buy a company like Babcock and Brown again that was a wannabe. From my point of view, unless I am taking a, a risk on a new company that I think has a lot of good quality uh, potential about, and I recently bought Tyro, and Tyro has been a really great, uh, but it had a lot, a lot of things going for it. The market's reacted fantastically, more than I expected, but still, it's, it's done it. But from now on, or from that, that lesson, I will never buy a company based on my, it was like a gut feeling thing. Mm. You know? it, it's like you go to the races and you think, oh, this, everyone's backing it because it must be good. No, no. You need to believe it. You need to do the homework on it because it's a really important thing that the money you invest. And of course, I have to invest on behalf of other people as well. So what's good enough for my clients has to be good enough for me and vice versa. That's a great example. The, um, my mum always calls it Bobcat and Brown and so that's what I would call it. <laughs> I can't help myself. Well, that, that's, um, a, that's probably very yeah, relevant, yeah. by the and way. It Bob was Cat. a fairly accurate description. Yeah. So I worked briefly at a broking firm mm. which had an allocation to Babcock and Brown. Yeah. And so this was when it was a listing, and I'm going to guess it was 2005. Uh, and maybe right people now. were absolutely out of themselves desperate. desperate. I don't remember yeah. ever seeing a stock that people were more desperate to get their hands on. Mm. And it was Poseidon guys, was, but you, you probably weren't even yeah, born was, uh, Yeah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> that was literally yeah. before my time. Yeah. Um, but people were falling mm. all over themselves. I, I were, the business was almost exclusively guys and there, yeah. was, there was real sort of aggressive haggling going on yeah. and people yeah. wheeling and dealing everywhere to get greater allocations to this one listing mm. for their clients yeah. on the the basis that it was going to be the next big thing. It was going to be the next Macquarie. It yeah. was going to be insanely profitable. It was really opaque. You couldn't really understand what was in it. Mm. Uh, it was quite confusing. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, even Macquarie was hard for normal people to understand. Mm. Uh, the model was understandable. But, you know, I actually interviewed Alan Moss because um, one of because our media part of the business that I really haven't talked about, uh, which is where we all started from, uh, we used to have the contract for the Institute of Chartered Accountants. We did the magazine for them and Alan was a, a – Alan, Alan, by the way, was the former CEO of Macquarie when it grew to greatness before the GFC. And uh, we interviewed him. He was the Accountant of the Year. And he, I actually said to him, you know, what's it like when you come into Macquarie this morning? He said, I have on my desk – an analysis of where the company will be if Wall Street is down 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%. I couldn't believe that mm. you know, most of us thought like 25% fall was the big – that's the kind of risk management you want from the guy at the top. Mm. And it is interesting that Alan did retire just before the GFC as well, showing maybe – but of course, yeah, <laughs> he'd been there for a long time. But I think that the bottom line is I think – these are lessons learnt the hard way, which I'm always happy to share um, with the stuff I write and mm. you know, when I do speeches and all that sort of stuff because I think people often do learn from people who have had the experience and if people had been my mentor, and I, did, I don't think I really had a, a money mentor apart from the books that I read and, uh, and I think a lot of my reading was done around the GFC um, because I, I, I'll have to answer a real lot of questions. Um, and uh, I think I learned a lot then. You know, I had a lot of knowledge before the GFC, yeah. but I think I crystallised the better way of investing as a consequence of the GFC. I think the GFC is just the Mike Tyson quote, which is everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face. And it's <laughs> like, that's what it felt like. It was like, 
I thought I knew what my risk tolerance is. Yeah. Now I know for sure. Yeah. And what I found, and which I do like to tell people as well, is my risk tolerance is higher than I thought. Yeah. I thought I was quite conservative, but it turns out it didn't bother me much. And I was the same. I was like, I'm happy to buy yeah. now. Mm. I think this is quite a good buying opportunity. Yeah. I, again, you know, have very long runway mm. to use to use my funds. I don't need them. Yeah. They were they were for investment purposes only. Yeah. And so, You're so young, Jim. Yeah, I had all this. Well, not so young now as I was <laughs> during the DFC, right? Um, so you know, it was very different to someone who was just about to retire, though. Yeah. And I think it was such a formative experience for anyone who went through it to go, yeah. I have – and for anyone who's listening, because we do have a lot of young people who listen to this, yeah. uh, to lose 55% of the value of your portfolio Shocking. is an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't matter who you are and you learn a lot from that. So if all of us boring old folk keep going on about it, it was quite, yeah. it was quite the but, experience. But the, 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 why on that subject, if, if you had really good quality companies, they rebounded the fastest. They, they sometimes fell faster than you thought they would. But that was because people just had to get get yeah. out, you yeah. know. So if someone was selling the good quality banks, they had to get out. But they were the ones that then were quickly picked up by the smarties who had, maybe had cashed up before the crash or weren't overexposed to the mar- market. And I think of the young people who might started watching my program because I started going four nights a week on Sky Business in the, after the crash. I was on once a week before then and then yeah, became wow. four nights. And I got a guy called Phil Riven on my show, and Phil's uh, the founder of Ibis World, the, the great research company, one of the biggest research companies in Australia. And I said to Phil, the history of Australia, Australia's stock markets in crashes, what, what does the market rebound like in the first year? And he said, the average is between, it, it, the range is 36 to 80%. Mm. And, and I kept telling people this, that, you know, we have a history of a big rebound in the year after the crash. Now, if young people start investing for the first time in March 2009 and haven't experienced a loss, well, they're up about 140% on mm. their investments. And so I think that's the important lesson. That, and, and the people, I really regret this. On 2GB, when I was doing the Super Show, which we started in 2010, there were people there who were so scared that they'd lost 55% and then they went to fixed deposits at 6%. And I kept saying to them, okay, you've lost once, but you might lose again if the market rebounds and they missed the, the, the rebound in, in the second half of 2009. I think understanding the history of stock markets can be a really great lesson for, for people who want to understand the potential for investing in stock markets. The other one that I think didn't get a huge amount of attention, but I remember it personally back yeah. in 2008, particularly in then early 2009, was all of these companies getting absolutely hammered in terms of their share price, started doing capital raisings at ridiculously low prices. Mm, yeah. uh, so... Macquarie was a great example, yeah. but plenty of the other. I remember Suncorp doing capital raising at like $4. And these <laughs> share prices were like, it was $12 two weeks ago, and now yeah. you're doing a raising at four. four. Yeah. And uh, and that was an incredible opportunity for people to buy in at really low prices. Yeah. And the issue was you were going to get diluted anyway. Mm. You may as well take advantage and mm. buy some cheap stuff, yeah. uh, which gave a lot of people an opportunity. And it's dollar cost averaging. If you, if you bought in at eight and they go on to 12, and you're going, yippee, yippee, mm. and it goes down to four, well, mm. you buy again. Um, Eight and four is 12 divided by two, you bought six. 
It, uh, it was also quite fascinating. A good reminder for me anyway was always keep some cash aside yeah. if you think there's potential for things to go down because yeah. you can utilise that or that you could have been waiting and, and for quite a, a while. Can I throw in a story while we're there? Because mm. I think it, for young people to understand this, and this is a great lesson I picked up from Jeff Bessos. You know, he knows a thing or two. Mm. Uh, he was saying uh, in the dot-com bust, uh, Amazon stock had gone to $100, uh, but before the bust. And then he said... When the market just melted down, $6. He said, but nothing had changed. The same demand for our books and CDs, that's what I was selling, was exactly the same. Nothing had changed, but the market's view on our company mm. had changed. And, of course, that would have been a fantastic buying opportunity, Amazon at $6. And so sometimes I think you have to look at the quality of the business. And I've also, because I'm a, a great fan of dividends for retirees in particular, and of course I have my Switzer Dividend Growth Fund as well, and I, I wanted to sort of pressure test what happens to great quality companies that pay dividends during a crash. And I looked at the, the kind of companies that we currently have in, in the fund. And like Woolworths, they actually increased their dividend during the crash. CBA cut their dividend for one half but then the next time they increased it by more than what they cut it by. Mm. So you, you, sometimes you have to understand it's only a passage in time and over time these good quality companies, they come back, they come back. And particularly if you've got, say, 10 or 20 of them, if there's one bad one, which AMP was at the time, AMP mm. was no, a great deliverer in those days, um, the other 19 can do fantastically well for you. If you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of comeback, like mm. all, all 20 would have fallen, yeah. I think. But it's the rate of comeback that makes you like you lose 50% today, mm. but after a year you're only down 30 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make people feel better. But that's okay. It's um but also it's in the distant past now, the GFC. It's easy to forget mm. how long ago it was because it's called it was the global a... financial crisis for people that know what GFC. Oh yes, because we keep talking. Yeah. So for young people today, because yeah. it's always so fascinating to hear, you, you know, you've got such an extraordinary business. It's really expansive. It covers so many different things. So many people listen to you in so many different ways. Yeah. And you've come to it in such a fascinating way, right? Mm. You, know, you didn't train to be a journalist. This is how it happened. Yeah. But for young people, it's quite different now. You know, the world's a little bit... Uh, but you, you're not going to ring up the front desk of the Daily Telegraph now. Maybe you will. I don't know. Good luck to you. Um, and also, you're not going there's to There's probably less people doing it. Maybe it might work now, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, yeah, it's uh, true. There's plenty uh, of things that work that would surprise uh, you. But also, you know, you're not going to buy a house in Wallara for $80,000, no. that sort of thing. So some things 54, have, by the way. 54. Yeah. Yeah. My friend bought Wallara at 80. I bought Paddington Oh, you bought Paddington at 54. Right. Other good. side of Oxford Street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, some of the opportunities that were so instrumental in ensuring mm. incredible success. Yeah. They're not available now, but other opportunities do present themselves, yeah. right? You know, you and I could never have started an afterpay because mm. it, the technology didn't exist, right? Mm. Um, so what are your thoughts for young people when they're facing a pretty different world? Um, look, I, I think it, it depends where you want to live. For example, if you want to live in Gunnedah, you can still buy a house. Um, it, was, it was actually hard buying in Gunnedah when the mining boom was on. Yeah. It was really expensive. But so I think it depends on where you want to live. Now, and let's face it, a lot of young people want to live in capital cities, close to the CBD, close to beaches, close to facilities, and that means you're going to pay a lot more for it. And so I, and I think 
if I was a young person now, I'd be looking at, well, you know, people in Manhattan, New York, have lived with this kind of problem their whole life. They've found it impossible to buy an apartment in New York, London, Paris, and all that sort of stuff. And so you just have to um, have your plan. And just like a business, I, I say you should have a personal wealth building plan. And it may well be, okay, um, <clears throat> I'm going to rent where I want to live um, and I'm going to buy a, a property <clears throat> in um, uh, Mount Martha or uh, Blackheath in the Blue Mountains or in the Tambourine Mountains outside of the Gold Coast and I will put an Airbnb function there and I'll make it work for me. Yeah, that could, see, cre creating a plan. Your plan might be... Um, I'm going to move in with my mum and dad and terrorise them for three or four years, not, <laughs> not pay rent, build up my money. Uh, or I'm going to use the, the first home super scheme. Um, I'm, I'm with a partner. We're both going to take it up to 60000 Or is it 30000 It's 30000 each, yeah. yeah. So, so together you get $10,000 a year yeah, each, up to 60000 And I know I can save a much higher return there and, uh, and, and then maybe – but I'm saying it's harder but it's not impossible. And, mm. a, and a lot of younger people are becoming property investors uh, and they're buying pl places where, the, where they can't afford to live but they realise that if they become a couple or they, get, uh, they both get pay rises or as an individual they study, get promotions, they one day can live in the house that they're renting out. And they've, they also learn that there's the tax – system can make it possible to do that sort of thing. I just would not ever capitulate and give in. I guess that's that focus I talked about earlier. Work out what you – all the people who succeed, whether it be – and I've interviewed lots of people from business to sport, you know, when I was doing talking business on Qantas and, and, and also my TV show. And you're right, I often would interview sporting people because I think they have great role lessons and role models for people in business. You, you've got to work out what the goal is, what you want, and then you have to work out um, a plan to make it happen and be totally focused on it. I have on my, my um, on my, um, uh, what we call the, when you open up your computer, Screen saver. Yeah. yeah, you see how old I am. Wallpaper? Yeah. Wallpaper? Yeah. yeah. I have a picture, it's a great picture, of, a, of an overweight middle-aged guy who's looking in the mirror and he's seeing, you know, Chris Hemsworth. You know, <laughs> yeah, he he thinks he mm. looks like that, mm. and I I keep that in front of me all the time to remind me that I a, I want to lose weight, <laughs> but b that we can kid ourselves that we're doing as well as we as we should, that we are looking good. You know, I like to be pushed, and um, my wife's been great at pushing me. You know, telling me that. You know, taking the easy way out, but you've got to push yourself. And if things are difficult, there's a great um, saying which I don't know off verbatim, but it says, "Don't wish that things were easier; wish that you were better." And I think you can apply that to everything in life, from what you're doing in business um, to what you do in your relationship, you know, your role model as a parent, uh, and being a great investor. All this stuff can be – you can get better at it, but you have to want it. So that Chris thing, deep down you want to win so badly, you actually make it happen. I've seen some of his workouts and let me tell you, um, that's in the wish category in terms of, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of commitment. But one of, the, one of the things I love to see 
to everybody yeah. who's who's finding all of this a bit intimidating is one thing that is different now is the access to insights and information yeah. and investment tools and stuff. It's out of this world compared yeah. to when we were first starting. And yeah. the doors were kind of closed to a lot of people. Yeah. And the knowledge as well. Yeah. The, the knowledge and insights you can get now are unbelievable. A lot of it's free, which mm. kind of segues beautifully into what I was going to ask you, which yeah. is you're a prolific commentator. You have yeah. extraordinary insights that you make available all the time to investors and mums and dads and anyone who's interested. How do people get access to all of your stuff? How do they? Yeah. Well, there's a number of ways. Um, so I write every morning on Switzer Daily. That's switzer.com.au. I think we've got – oh, I, I'm guessing the numbers, but I think we've got 60,000, 70,000 subscribers. Um, so that, and so they, they see me every day. Then there's a Switzer report, and that's for investors. You know, So people who want – Inside, not inside information, but yeah. <laughs> not no, no, legal no. information. Stock market, great ideas from really great market people like Charlie Aitken and Julia Lee and Michael McCarthy and Paul Ricard. These are people who live and breathe all the time. And they are looking. Rudy Philippeck Van Dyke from FN Arena. All these sort of people are analysing all the time and they give insights. So that's one that suits the report as well. Then we have a TV show now which goes out uh, once a week on our YouTube channel, um, which is, you just goes to Switzer Financial Group for that. And... Um, uh, 2GB, I'm now working with Alan Jones every morning, uh, which is um, uh, an interesting uh, uh, experience because, you know, Alan's right across a lot of uh, political... <laughs> got economic. an opinion There's on everything. Exactly yeah. right. And, and, of course, you know, I, I do Sky on Sky on uh, Wednesday and Friday mornings at 20 past 7, Sky News. I do a business report for those guys as well. You're not slowing down, are you? No, 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 seriously, I, I love it so much and, uh, and, I, and, and I say, it's just sharing um, stuff I, I, I'm looking for myself, for my own investments and for my clients in financial planning, but also I do a lot of speeches and so I like sharing this sort of thing and, and the thing is this, the knowledge is there but the vast majority of people think it's boring or too hard and it's not too hard. That's why I wrote that book, you know, Join the Rich Club. Uh, I don't want people to be filthy rich, but I want people to feel comfortable. And, uh, and it's just knowledge, you know, little bits of knowledge that they can just um, take and apply and not make mistakes. And over time, they wake up or they retire and there's lots of money there for them to be comfortable to help their family and that sort of stuff. Enriching the lives of themselves and others, that's what I like to do. Peter, on our 100th episode, thank you so much. Well, great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening now, as always. We do so much love to hear from you. So if you have any topics you'd like to hear more about or guests you'd like to hear from, please just email your suggestions to yourwealthatnab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.